Almighty Father in heaven, you alone are good. You provide and sustain, nourish, and keep your people as to constantly remind us of your goodness, your power, and your love. Thank you, Lord. This morning we have had the privilege to sing your praises, share in the prayers of the saints, and receive the promises of your word read. Now, as we come to your word preached, the bread of life being torn open and set before us, oh, that you would grant your spirit to come and to grant us eyes to see the glory of Jesus, our Savior, and ears to hear the good promises and gifts that you provide for us only in Christ. May our hearts not only acknowledge and affirm your steadfast love and justice this morning, but cause our hearts to sing and to soar with confidence that you are indeed good. You are the one who provides for us. You're the one who strengthens our hearts. You are our portion and that forevermore. May we drink deeply from the well of your word this morning, Father, for we are indeed thirsty. We confess how we have all forsaken the fountain of living waters and have hewn for our self cisterns for of our own making and they have never held water and they have never satisfied our soul may we turn then this morning in repentance to drink from this stream of living water which is Christ Jesus our savior as we see him set before us through the preaching of your word for all who drink this water will never thirst again grant us listening ears seeing eyes Baited hearts of great anticipation that we may receive and rest in these words of life that you have given to us this morning. And we ask that you will do these things in the name and authority that is above every authority, the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, we're taking a turn away from First Peter this morning. There are several circumstances that uh, caused me to make this decision. But I want us to consider this morning as we come to the Lord's table, what exactly that we are doing as we come to the Lord's table. And the reason I want to do this is because um, though I didn't grow up in the church, I spent a good bit of my teenage years in the church. I went to college and pursued a degree in ministry, went to seminary, stayed there for far longer than I needed to, and took classes, and during that entire time, I never remember once my church, my college, or my seminary teaching me what exactly is taking place and what exactly is happening during the Lord's Supper. And so one of the things that I've been wanting to do, and and I'll try to do, is at least once a year to set aside a time where we're explaining some of these things that are taking place specifically in the worship service. I try as we work through the order of service to explain the different elements and what we do. But the Lord's Supper is so pivotal and necessary that it is important for us to take a time this morning, let's set aside a time, move away from 1 Peter for a week, and look together at the Lord's Supper, this theme of the Lord's Supper. And I want us to gather our thoughts around this passage here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and consider the Lord's Supper with me. Our Baptist catechism that we read and spend time discipling not only our own hearts but the hearts of our, our family and children says in question 102, what is the Lord's Supper? The answer it gives is this. 
The Lord's Supper is an ordinance of the New Testament instituted by Jesus Christ, wherein, by giving and receiving bread and wine according to his appointment, his death is shown forth. And the worthy receivers are, not after a corporal or carnal manner, but by faith made partakers of his body and blood with all his benefits. To this spiritual, to their spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. Now that's a mouthful. That's a lot of things being said there. And the point I want to make then is this. Is that for us to understand the Lord's table well and faithfully, it is important for us to understand that this isn't just one singular doctrine that has one or two passages that we can look to. But instead, in order for us to understand this, we need to really knit our Bible together and understand and grasp that there are several important doctrines that actually um, overlap each other for us to be able to carefully and faithfully understand the Lord's Supper. Things like that, that seem to be very straightforward and clear may not, in fact, be clear in our own hearts or, or minds. When we ask the question, what is conversion? What does it mean for somebody to have faith? What does it look like for repentance to be in a man or woman's heart? What is justification and sanctification? These questions need to be affirmed and understood clearly in order for us to understand the Lord's table. Also, what is the church? The church, baptism, the visible and invisible church, the authority of Christ over her, the church. We need to understand that these things are things that we need to knit together as we consider the Lord's Supper. And even as I read the answer this morning from the catechism question, which is very succinct and, and very short, really, there's a lot in there. And so this morning, I want us to go to the Scriptures and see Paul, as he is helping this congregation in Corinth, to, to really unravel some of the misconceptions they have and to give them help to understand how they can most faithfully understand and come to the Lord's table. Now, this church here in Corinth was a mess. It was a mess. I mean, anybody who's read through the, the letters of First and Second Corinthians know that this church had all kinds of problems. Um, there were in, incredible problems that you would not even... If you, if you read this list of things that they were doing wrong and things that they were um, pursuing, you would say, I don't even know if they're actually Christians or not. Because it was so botched and so amazing, they're, they're going after all kinds of things. Well, it begins in chapters 1, 2, and 3 by saying that they're, they're really the catalyst for all of the mess that they had in this church was this. Their rampant divisions. They were divided among each other. And yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, it says something shocking. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2 says this. The church of God... That is in Corinth. Paul is calling them the church. Even with all this mess that he was getting ready to address of, uh, that's, that's in 1 first, first Corinthians. He refers to them as the church of God. And then he goes on and says this. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now think about all the things they were struggling with. And he goes on, Paul does, and says not, he calls them not only the church of God. He not only says they're sanctified in Christ Jesus in chapter 1 verse 2. But he goes on and he says, called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. He's affirming them as the church of God, as those who are sanctified, and those who are called saints. Even with the mess that they're in and all the troubles and struggles that they are participating in. Well, these divisions 
were not just the visions that they had out in the foyer or out in the parking lot or even in their own homes. The divisions that Paul is concerned about and that he addresses in this letter in 1 Corinthians are divisions that they had in their worship service. Can you believe it? There were people who were gathering together and they had divisions even in their time of worship. The early first, maybe the first worship wars were here in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, you can turn maybe one page over if you're there in 1 Corinthians 11. Turn one page over to 1 Corinthians 10. Look with me at verses 14 through 17. And you see that this division was taking place in the Lord's taking of the Lord's table. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation? And that word actually is koinia, it's the word fellowship. Is it not fellowship in the blood of Christ? And the bread that we break, is it not participation or fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. You see what he's doing here? He's saying Christ should be the one uniting us, and especially here at the table. Not dividing us, for we all partake of the one bread. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17. So we can look there at 1 Corinthians 10, and we see that he is addressing the issue of Lord's Supper there. But I want us to look together this morning at 1 Corinthians 11. And I want you to find your place there at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 17. And we're going to work through the rest or the remainder of that chapter and consider some things that will help us be able to better understand and participate in the Lord's table. And we're going to look at this this morning in four points. Four points which actually coincide with the four paragraphs that are in our text this morning from verse 17 through verse 34. Point number one that we're going to look at this morning is no commendation when you gather. That's point number one. No commendation when you gather. This is verses 17 through 22. No commendation when you gather. Verses 17 through 22. Point number two is clear command for the Lord's Supper. A clear command for the Lord's Supper. This is verses 23 through 26. Point number three, then, is an obvious condemnation. An obvious condemnation. This is verses 27 through 32. And then point number four is an appeal to come together to eat. An appeal to come together to eat. This is verses 33 and 34. No commendation, point one. A clear command, point two. Obvious condemnation, point three. And an appeal to come together to eat, point number four. So let's look together at verses 17 through 22. And notice how Paul is saying that he has no commendation for this congregation as they come to the Lord's table. Paul gives two reasons why he is unable to commend or affirm what this church is doing as they participate in the Lord's table together. The Lord is not happy with what's happening. Paul is addressing them and saying, the Lord is not happy with how you take the Lord's Supper. We can do this wrong. We can do this unfaithfully. And so here he speaks of two reasons. One 
is in verses 17 through 19. And it's because you come together and it's for your worse. It's for, it's for the worse of you, not the better of you. Notice what it says in verse 17. Verse 17, it says, But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, he says, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. In other words, you coming to the Lord's table, you think it's of of advantage, you think it's a benefit, but actually it's doing you harm by coming. This can happen. We need to understand this. Why can these saints have, excuse me, why can these saints make things worse and not better by coming to something so clearly commanded as the Lord's table? And the reason is because there's divisions among them. The very thing that the Lord's table was supposed to represent and reflect, they were ignoring. And this is incredibly important for us to understand. Look with me at verse 18 as it goes on. It says, For, this is why it's for your worse, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, as a congregation, as an assembly, I hear that there are divisions among you. In other words, your gathering is actually a picture contrast of what is actually taking place. Paul believes that divisions exist in the church. And he tells us why he believes these divisions exist in the church. Because they do, because they do in every church, and these divisions actually reflect something in each and every church. Each church, every church has divisions. Why? Because there's sinners there. Why is there divisions in churches? Why is there conflict? Why is there struggles? Is there a division in our church? Is there conflict? As long as there's sinners, yes, that's happen- that happens. There's people who rub against each other that, that don't quite agree with one another. You, 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 you won't go on vacation together. You're like, I love that person. I care for them. I'll serve them. I'll, I'll, I'll do what I can to, to love them. But man, I can't go on vacation with that person, right? Why is it... Why is it that there's divisions in a church? 1 Corinthians 11, look at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, I'm, I'm sure there's divisions in a church. And he says, I believe it. Notice in verse 18. And I believe it in part. Why? For there must be factions among you. Why? In order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. What is he saying there? He's saying this. To love one another in this congregation as any congregation is hard. And when conflict and struggle and difficulty happen, you're going to ask the question, do I want to stay here or not? I mean, this is hard. And these people are getting into my life and they're speaking into my life. And and some, some even irritate me. I'm going to circle the wagons and do only what I need to do to take care of me. The question you have to ask is this. Are you here this morning because of Christ or because of you? Is, is being a part of this congregation more about you and your preferences and your personal growth and, and, and ability to, to get affirmed? Or is this church about Christ and what he's doing not only in you but also among this congregation? When we begin honing in and thinking it's ultimately about me and what I'm doing, the irritations will drive you away. The factions will begin causing you to say, you know what, maybe I need to go somewhere else and do something else. Why? Because Christ is not at the center of why you are here. The factions and the disagreements and the disorder causes all of us to say, am I here for Jesus? Now, many of you have been in this congregation for many years. And you've seen people that you love dearly and you care about. You've poured your life into them. You might even have seen babies born into these families. And we loved them and cared for them. And then Out of nowhere, and sometimes for no reason at all, they just up and leave. It's hard. 
And when that person up and leaves now, there's several other families that say, you know what, I think I'm going to up and leave as well. And then that's hard. And you've got to ask the question, am I here because of those people or because of the friendships I have? Or because of all the other blessings that I have? Because many of us are so blessed by the relationships we have with one another. Or am I here ultimately and finally because Jesus is here? And when I come here, I am encouraged to look to Christ and to consider him. The factions and the struggles in a congregation will cause us to determine whether we're actually genuinely here for Christ or not. Now, he doesn't commend them because these factions, he says, he believes in part are among them. And then he goes on and he gives the second reason. This is in verses 20 and 22. Look here, it says, because they come together and it's not the Lord's Supper that they're actually taking. They're going through the motions. Now, know this. You can go through the motions. You can do these things. You can get bread. You can get a cup. You can do all this stuff. You can call it whatever you want. But if the Lord doesn't call it the Lord's Supper, then it's not the Lord's Supper, no matter how much you intend for it to be. The second reason here before us is given, and he's saying the reason he cannot commend what they're doing in their congregation is because they are not taking the Lord's Supper. Verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. And the reason is because it has become more a matter of their own preferences, their own wants, and their own assumptions. In other words, the Lord's Supper has become about what they want and what they desire and what they prefer rather than who Christ is. It says in verse 21, For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. That's their own preference, their own desires, their own assumptions. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. It's all about them. It's all about what they want. It's all about their own assessment and decisions concerning the Lord's table. Paul here is saying something astonishing. He's saying, it's not the Lord's table if it's finally and ultimately just about you. Now, we might agree that these divisions and the fact that some are going on and eating and, and, and some are, getting, are, are, are going hungry and others are getting drunk and, and they're kind of going ahead of one another and not regarding one another, that's... That's, that's not kind. That's not helpful. But we can see how easily that can happen. And we're like, what, what's the big deal here? Why is, it, why is it such a big deal for this to be addressed by Paul? It is because by, by acting in this way, when we act, when we live in this congregation, as if this congregation ultimately and finally had its, has its center in you and what your preferences are and what you desire, Paul here says that when you do this, you are, here's the word, despising the congregation and you're despising Christ. That's pretty serious. That's pretty serious. Notice in verse 22, it says, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Paul says, No, I will not commend you in this. Because you're despising the very church of Christ, the bride of Christ, and Christ himself. When you make the Lord's Supper and you make this gathering of God's people about you and your preferences and your desires and your wants. So when we come to the Lord's table, we can easily make it about how we rank in relationship to others. There are many of you here this morning, as I did when I was an early Christian, um, and, and even in my younger days when I was trying to think through, I remember the Lord's table taking place. 
It was usually on Sunday nights in my home church, and they would, they, would be, they would be doing the Lord's Supper, and I'd be thinking to myself, now, am I as bad or as good as everybody sitting around me? That's what I used to think. I'm like, okay, if I'm going to examine myself, is this how I'm supposed to examine myself? Am I as, well, I'm, I'm, I'm better than that person, and I'm not as bad as that. And this person's really, man, they, they're really, really great. I'm, I'm nowhere near them. That's not what we're supposed to be doing. That's not what this is saying. In fact, this is saying that's exactly not what we're supposed to be doing, is ranking ourselves. According to those who are around us, either spiritually or in physical, material status. We can so easily make the Lord's Supper about our personal conclusions, our personal preferences, our self-perceived assumptions, and even what we think Jesus is really like, at least in our own heads, or what we assume about him. In that way, you're not taking the Lord's Supper when when you are considering Christ in your own way, when you're thinking of him and creating a Jesus in your own mind, but instead you're despising the very church of God and making it more about you and your assumptions and your wants. The supper then is not a declaration of your personal standing with Christ. Make that clear. The supper is not a declaration of your personal standing with Christ, but instead it is a bond and a pledge of your communion with Christ and with each other. That's why we take it together. That's why this is not something that um, we, do, we, do not, we do not take the, 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 the Lord's table uh, trays um, on the go. We don't stick them in our car and go off and do this in people's homes. We do this together as a body of believers because it's a declaration not only of our communion with Christ, but also our communion with one another, our commitment and covenant with one another to live in a particular way. Now, there are many other Christians that are in this town But we're not committing and bonding our hearts to them as we do to one another in this body of believers. So point number one is here Paul is saying that we that he cannot commend. There's no condemnation or no commendation, I'm sorry, no commendation for what they are doing. And he gives them reasons why. But then I want us to notice in point number two that there is a clear command to them, a clear command for them. To take the Lord's table. In other words, he's saying, though I do not commend what you're doing, I want you to understand that doesn't mean you simply say, you know what, we're just going to stop doing it. We're just going to refuse to have the Lord's table regularly in our service. No, he gives them a clear command. So if what they're doing was not the Lord's Supper, then what constitutes the meal that would be indeed the Lord's Supper in God's eyes? We have it here. And the first truth I want you to notice clearly is that one's understanding of the Lord's Supper is to be determined and regulated by none other than the Lord Jesus. We see that even Paul, even the Apostle Paul, is saying in this passage that he himself is not able and not willing to alter what he has received from the Lord. 1 Corinthians 11.23, look with me there. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. Do you see how clear that is? I received it from the Lord, and I handed it right over to you. I didn't tweak it. I didn't make it my own. I didn't add something to it. I delivered it straight to you from what I received in the Lord. The point I want you to see here in this portion of the text is that the Lord's Supper is not established by our imaginations. It could never be assessed or determined in its value by our understanding or evaluation. It is really very unimpressive, isn't it, for us to come forward and take this little piece of bread and take this little cup 
And then at a certain time during the service, we actually eat that bread and we drink that cup. Unimpressive. The world would look at that and say, this is foolishness. Why do they keep doing this? It must be some empty-headed, empty-headed ritual that they do that they think there's meaning in. Or, or it was given to us by God. And we are going to be faithful to what the Lord has given to us and know that he gives us those things that are necessary and that are good. And it's an aspect of our faith. Now, the Lord's Supper, like baptism, is what we would call and what has been called in history a positive law or commandment. Did you hear that word? Positive, that term, positive. Our confession in chapter 28 says, speaking of baptism and the Lord's Supper, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. When you think of the word positive... You don't think of it in this way, likely. What does it mean that the Lord's Supper is a positive and sovereign institution? It means that this command is not one that we naturally would understand apart from God commanding it to us or giving it to us in his word. It is, in other words, posited to us. Positive, it is a command that is posited to us. Think for a moment. If you did not have God's word, and there's people all over the world that do not have God's word or do not read God's word, we understand that if you do not have God's word or doesn't, don't read God's word, then the moral law is still knit in our hearts as image bearers. In other words, apart from God's law, we still would know not to steal. Humanity understands that. It's something that's in us. It's a part of the moral law that's in us. We would know that murder is wrong. We would know that committing adultery is wrong. All humanity knows that lying is wrong. This is something that doesn't have to be told to us in scriptures. It's something that the moral law and by being image bearers that we know. However, there are things that we don't know unless the Lord tells us. Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve were told not to eat of the tree. Now that isn't part of the moral law. That was a command, a positive command given to Adam and Eve, and specifically Adam, by God. This Lord's Supper is not something that we would sit and kind of think together and say, you know what, this is what we need to do. It's something that Christ clearly instituted and gave to us, and it's something that we're told to do, and because he commanded it, it is right and good and necessary for us to do this, do this uh, institution, this, this Lord's table. So, here Paul is clearly, clearly saying that even he, the apostle, has no freedom to shape or to change this Lord's table because it was not laid down by him and it wasn't given to him to shape and to change according to the customs and the rituals of the day or according to culture. No, the Lord's table is supposed to be something that is enduring for the church throughout time. It was, it was received uh, to him by the Lord. The Lord Jesus gave it to him and he did not mess with it and instead handed it over, delivered it over just as he received it to the Corinthian church. This is important for us because today... We often think that we are doing God a favor when we begin to become innovative and creative, especially about worship and the things that are in worship. Our day is filled with people that think that what God wants us to do is come in here and just show our creativity and our imagination and how wonderful everything is and when, when we can touch it and handle it and make it better. Or when we do that, we're being foolish because we're denying that what God has given to us is good. And right. We're given a clear command here 
not to mess with the supper and do something with it that is not our own. And we're also told that we cannot evaluate it or value it based on our own understanding, but according to how the Lord, in fact, has given it to us because he has given it to us and he's told us how to do this, we can be assured that it's not only necessary but good for us. And this is why we're to continue to do it. And this is why the Lord's table has continued throughout 2,000 years. Now notice another important truth that we recognize in this command that's given here. Given here. We're naturally going to assess, know this, you, will, you and I will naturally assess everything with ourselves being the center point of reference. And the Lord's Supper, uniquely, in a way that's unlike so many other things, the Lord's Supper calls us to do something very important and not natural to ourselves. It causes us and insists on us looking outside of ourselves and finding value somewhere out there, and specifically in Christ. When we come to the Lord's table, we are told to turn away from ourselves and to fix our faith on Christ and Christ alone and upon what he did on the cross. Now, I want you to notice how absolutely Christocentric the Lord's Supper is and how it keeps us hinged to Christ, clinging to Christ, fixing our faith on Christ. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23 here in our passage. And notice how absolutely necessary Christ is in the midst of this. Verse 23, that the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, listen to what he says. He's pointing them back to himself. This is my body. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of, Jesus says, me. Not of you, but of me, Jesus says. In the same way, also, he took the cup. And after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in what? My blood. Do this as often as you drink it. How or for what reason? In remembrance of me, Jesus says. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim not your status, but the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper causes us, and we're grateful for this, to turn our hearts to Christ and to make it about Christ and Him crucified. So we see here that the Lord's Supper forces us to look outside ourselves and to remember and to consider and to rest and to receive Christ and all of His benefits. And just as bread and drink sustain us and nourish us, So the body and blood of Christ is, according to our passage here, for you. And that you actually is not an individual you, it's actually a plural you. It's all for us, those who are in Christ. Those who are in Christ by faith, for our food and our nourishment of our souls unto eternal life. We will, in our constant fear and desperate need for something in this world to fix our hope on, we will look everywhere and anywhere to cling to for hope because our hearts are so desperate. Our faith is so weak and frail. We are so weary in so many ways. We look for something to place our faith in. And the Lord in His grace and in His goodness has given us something very tangible. Our faith is, is wrought and grown and nourished by the hearing of the preaching of God's Word. We know that's true. But the Lord took another step in in his, His grace and mercy for us And he says, I'm going to give you something you can hold. 
Something you can see that's tangible. So when we receive this broken, jagged piece of bread this morning and hold that small plastic cup this morning, you will have these simple elements in your hands. And you're going to hold them for a little bit while everybody else gets theirs. You're going to be sitting there looking at that, noticing those who are around you. And you're going to be holding them tangibly, grasping them with your hands. You're going to be thinking about the broken body of Christ because it is his body, right? You're going to be thinking about the blood of Christ because it is my blood, he says, right? Then we will eat that bread and taste it in our mouths. And we will drink from that cup and taste the sharpness of that juice. And we will be doing this not as individuals by ourselves, but we are doing this and experiencing this together as a body of believers, affirming Christ's death and burial and resurrection, the grace that we have in him. This very real, concrete, even palatable event will be done together this morning by those who are in Christ. We know that by faith, through the Holy Spirit, in that very moment, we will be sharing together in what Christ accomplished and finished for us thousands of years ago. And this tangible sign then is for our faith, that which strengthens and encourages us. And we can go on knowing that as long as we try to look in introspection to ourselves, we will never be strengthened, but instead we will continue in despair. And as we look to Christ, his broken body and his shed blood on the cross, only then will our souls be nourished and strengthen together as his people. And finally, when we take and eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim again and again and again because we must be reminded again and again and again to, as we drift away so often to keep looking to Christ, that the gospel is necessary, that him crucified is what we must cling to, that our faith must continue in him. And we must do this together because we are proclaiming this glorious truth not only to ourselves, but to one another. For how long? Until he returns. Because that's how long we're going to need it. Until he returns. So the Lord's Supper is only the Lord's Supper for those who are united to Christ by faith and repentance. I hope you can see just how foolish and fearful it is to base the value of coming to this table on your personal feelings, oh, how tragic. On your changing emotions, oh, how fearful. On your earnest intentions, you will never find hope there. You will only find the secure, confident hope when you turn and cling and fix your heart and your faith upon Christ. Here at the table, for those who look to Christ in repentance and faith, in Him, you will remember and you will proclaim Christ until He comes. And we're doing it not only for our own souls, but for one another. This is, this is the clear command that's given to us in the Scriptures. Number three, point number three. Notice this fearful condemnation. This fearful condemnation. Verses 27 through 32. This is the passage that so many tend to hone in on. And hopefully we can take a look at it this morning and consider it together. Look with me here, this fearful condemnation. Paul here is saying, do not take the Lord's Supper lightly. 
This is not something to be trifled with. This is not something to, to uh, disregard or, or, or just think it's just, just something else to, to add to my list of things to do. No, this is not what so many have said throughout the history of the church, that this is simply a memorial, some way that we can remember the, the goodness of Christ and remember the goodness of the gospel and nod our head at our Savior as if, as if yes, I affirm again. Yes, that's, that's what happened. Yes, and then move on. No, here... Paul is saying you need to be careful when you approach the table because this is somewhere where there can be a fearful condemnation. And he actually speaks of it here in verses 27 through 32. Paul continuing to explain the tragic results and consequences of this Christ-centered aim of the Lord's table and what it will, will produce. Look with me at verse 27 here. It says, whoever therefore, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner... Notice what the consequences are. We'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. If this is the Lord's Supper, then Paul is saying we need to be very careful. We are not taking it in as if we are the ones that substantiate it, and we should not consider it and and pursue it um, haphazardly, for in so doing we will be taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Paul continues to say that if one takes this unworthily, then that person will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. What do we need to consider in order to evaluate if we are taking the supper in a worthy manner or not? Paul gives us direction in verse 28. Look there in verse 28. He continues. He says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Paul speaks and says that we are to consider our own lives and our faith. However, and I want to be clear here, listen to this because this is so, so much the tendency for so many of us. This is not a, a deep dive into the depths and darkness of our soul so that we can t- determine and drudge up all the sins and all the things that have happened in our lives over the last as long as we can remember. And then take those and place them on a scale. And then, and then think through all of the good things we've done this week and how faithful we have been and how great things have been and all the good things we've tried to do and pile them on the other side of the scale and then weigh that out and say, if one outweighs the other, then that's the way I'm supposed to examine myself. That's the way we often attempt to do that. That's the way those who are not in Christ have to do that because anyone who is not in Christ All they have is what they can bring to the table. Here's all the bad. Here's all the good. Lord, do something with this. Can can, can you make something out of this? You understand that that is not the gospel. That has never been the gospel. This genuine examination and consideration of our sin is to be done, listen carefully, in light of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. It is this, it is asking the question, am I trusting Christ alone for my standing before the Lord? Or do I bring anything before the Lord, either my sin or my attempts at righteousness? If you bring either one of those to the Lord, you will never stand before him. Not my feelings, not my emotions, not my experiences, not an extraordinary event that I had sometime in the past in my life when I said a prayer or did some, something in particular, none of these will establish our hearts in Christ. None of them will give us assurance. 
These will only cause us to constantly question if we have done enough. Have I been good enough? Have I avoided evil enough? When you go down that road, you will find that you'll never find it in there. The question is, is Christ enough? That's the question. Is Christ enough? Is what he says in his promises, and that is that he can forgive our sin if we call upon his name, confess our sin, and ask him for his righteousness to be applied to us and our sin and wickedness to be applied to him. Listen to our catechism. We use another catechism. Other than the Baptist catechism, we also use the Orthodox catechism. And in Orthodox catechism, which was written in 1680, I want to mention that because this isn't something that's new and novel in way of the way we understand the Lord's Supper or the way I'm explaining it here. But I want you to see here, back in 1680, the catechism was written and asked this question, Who are to come Who are to come to the table of the Lord? Who is it that's supposed to come to the table of the Lord? Listen to what it says. Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins. Now listen to this. And yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weaknesses is covered by the suffering and death of Christ. Did you hear that? Don't just listen to the beginning. Let me, hear, let me read it again. Those who are truly displeased with themselves. Now, you can again, you can go down that rabbit hole. You can keep diving deeper and deeper and being displeased with your sin and your heart and your soul. And, and none of that will save you. None of that will make you better. It's only when you turn by faith to trust in Christ to forgive you of your sin and your remaining weakness that you have, that he has covered your sin by the suffering and death of Christ. Not by, your, not by your efforts and not by your groveling over sin. And it goes on and it says, Who are to come to the table? Those who trust Christ and also their remaining weaknesses to be covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So, is that all that our text is saying? Just consider your own heart and your own faith in Christ. Is that what our text is saying? This is necessary, but we see that Paul insists that this self-examination also has to necessarily be done in a corporate manner. Notice the nature of this confession, this examination in verse 29. It starts with the connection in verse 29, the conjunction, I mean, and it starts with in verse 29, for. What, what follows then is an explanation of how one is to examine themselves. That's what it's speaking of here. Verse 28 says examine yourselves, and then verse 29 begins with for, explaining this is how this examination is to be taken place. We're to do this examination as well as the severe consequences if one does not. Many rightly focus on the severe consequences of these verses when they are read. However, notice as I read the, corporate, the, the very corporate nature of these verses. It's important for us to notice that these verses necessarily cannot be talked about. And one cannot take the Lord's Supper in this way, obeying these verses, if you do it by yourself or for your own particular interests and benefit. Anyone who's taking the supper must do so in a local body of believers that they are not just casually connected to, but actually coveting with. 
Look with me in chapter 11, verse 29. I want you to see this. And notice how corporate it is. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That sounds pretty singular. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if, here's the, here's the pronoun, if we judged ourselves truly, now it's talking corporate, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, that's the body of believers, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The phrase, without discerning the body, means the body of Christ, not one's personal body, but the body of Christ. Throughout Corinthians, Paul's making that point that is the body of believers with all those members that he's speaking of here. So the body of Christ here is speaking of the, the, the Christians, the congregation that they're a part of. In other words, he does not make, it does not make sense to take the Lord's Supper on one's own or by, by oneself. The congregation, the fellowship of the body of believers is necessary for this. And notice that this we that's throughout this passage says that when we examine ourselves, we're to have other brothers and sisters around us, encouraging us, helping us see ourselves better. We're way too hard on ourselves or way too easy on ourselves so often. But body of believers around us are able to level that and help us understand our hearts better than we can in and of ourselves. So notice that the many of you are weak and ill, it says, and so have died. We find that we are to be careful not only just to look after ourselves as we consider the Lord's table, but many of you know that as we come to the Lord's table, we are making a declaration of who we are as a body of believers. This is why I mention to you often the week or two before we come to the Lord's table to prepare for that. You get an email during the week, those of you who are members of our church, to examine your heart and to consider your relationship with others and to be faithful as you come here to take the Lord's table on Lord's Day. It says in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one and 32, But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned. And it goes on, along with the world. In other words, this Lord's table is marking off with clarity who's in the world and who is not in the world, who has been called into Christ's kingdom and who remains in the world's kingdoms. This judgment will affect our whole congregation. It will affect, according to our passage, the body. This may seem very unusual to us because we're so individualistic. We, we, we assume that everything about my spiritual life is about me and Jesus and about my understanding of what I think the scriptures say. We can't understand what this is speaking of. This is very unusual for us this morning, that when we come to the table, this is a corporate event, corporate experience, and the church must understand that when we come to the table, throughout history it's been understood as something that we should tremble at because we're in a body of believers. Again, 1680, long time ago, right? Still true today because it's speaking of these truths that are here in our passage. In our Orthodox Catechism back in 1680, the next question that's asked after the one I just read just a minute ago, the next question that was asked is, asked, is question 86, and it says this, Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? Did you hear that? Should we be nice 
and let those, even though they live ungodly and unbelieving lives, should we be nice because we're taking the Lord's table to say we're going to be kind and gracious and nice and let you take the Lord's table as well? That's what it's asking here. Let me ask it again. Let me read the question and see if that's what you think it's asking. Are those also to be admitted to the Lord's Supper who by their confession in life show that they are unbelieving and ungodly? That's the question. Listen to the answer. It may shock you. No, the answer is. No, for then the covenant of God would be profaned. And it goes on. Listen. And his wrath will be kindled against that whole congregation. Did you hear that? That whole congregation is going to be brought in. Well, I thought it was about me and Jesus. It never has been. It never has been. Therefore, according to the commandment of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound, it goes on and says, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven until they amend their lives. In other words, the church is to be careful to make sure that the church is marking who is in the body of believers, who are those who are truly believers, and who are not. And it's the church's responsibility to affirm that. We today have grown to believe that any and everybody can be a personal testimony to their own salvation, and it's supposed to be credible just because one individual says it. The church has been given that responsibility. The congregation of God's people has been given that responsibility. And as a member of our congregation, we are all in covenant with one another through what Christ has done for us in Christ in a specific and unique way. And if you are not desiring to be in covenant with us, if you have no desire to be in covenant with us, or are not in covenant with another congregation, as you're visiting here today, you may be in covenant with another congregation and in good standing with them, not under church discipline, but in good standing with another congregation. You may be visiting with us this morning. If that is not the case, then I would, insert, I, would, I would strongly encourage you to consider the clear warnings that the Lord himself has placed around the Lord's table for your own personal benefit and as an expression of the gospel before the eyes of this congregation. We do not live personal individualized faith that has less to do with the Bible and more to do with American Christianity that we've created in our heads and demanded from God and it is appalling to him. In other words, according to page 3, all of these things from 1 Corinthians 11, I drew out and looked at and said four R's would help us understand this best. There on page 3 in our worship journal, it says, those who are invited to the table are those who are regenerate having confessed Christ through baptism. Those who are repentant, not living in any habitual or treasured sin, not someone who's sinning, someone who is, who is not, who is repented of that sin, who is seeking forgiveness for that sin, who is looking to mortify and kill that sin in their life, but one who is, who is continuing to live in sin with joy and, and ambition and desiring to pursue a sin. That person is not to be coming to the Lord's table. They are unrepentant. A person who is responsible, it says on page 3, seeking to faithfully live out our covenant with one another, or if you're visiting today and you live out that covenant with another congregation, you may come to the table. Fourthly and finally, reconciled, maintaining unity and fellowship by reconciling any broken relationships 
within Christ's body. And in this way, and in this way, we are marked out from the world and are not considered to be, as our passage says in the verse 32, along with the world. But we are Christ's. Finally, I want us to notice this appeal to come in verses 33 through 34. Now, it's easy after those last three points for everybody in here to be thinking, I'm not going to get up during the Lord's table. This is serious. This is something that I need to take seriously. And I, and I hope you hear that. I hope, that, that is the, I hope that's what you've heard, that there are clear criteria that the Lord has set forward. But I want you to hear this. In verses 33 and 34, let a person examine himself, then, it says, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Our passage is calling us to come to the table. And here at the end of our text this morning, the saints are called brothers, it says. See that there in verse 33? So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, it's commending, it's calling, it's appealing to the brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are in the church, to come to the Lord's table. It's calling us to do this. In other words, I never want to encourage, and I don't think our scriptures call us to commend or to call people not to come to the table, but to so alter and make right your lives to come by faith to Christ through faith and repentance, to be united to a body of believers in covenant so that you can come to the table and receive the glorious benefits that are clearly offered here and for each and every one of us. The table is good and it reflects the gospel in such a clear and wonderful way. It says in Chapter 11, verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment about the other things I will give a direction when I come. He's saying here, I want you to come to the table. I want you to understand these criteria that the Lord has set forward. I want you to understand that it is the Lord's table, and it's for you to be benefited and to be encouraged and to be nourished in the faith. Come to the table, but don't come on your own terms. And according to your own standards, according to your own assumptions, this is very dangerous. So this morning, I want you to hear the call that Mark Stephen gave to us when he read Isaiah 55 this morning. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters, and he who has no mercy, no money, come and buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money For that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me, God says, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, You shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you. Because of the Lord your God and the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. Seek the Lord. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let Him return to the Lord that He may have compassion on you. And to our God, listen to this, verse 7 of Isaiah 55, for he will, 
if we call upon him, if we seek him while he can be found, he will abundantly pardon. This morning as we come to the table, there will be those who will not be partaking. There will be many of our children who have not yet placed their faith in Christ and we have not yet brought into covenant membership in our church and they'll come forward and their mom and dad will take the cup and the bread and the children will come and they will not be taking of the table and it is a declaration of the gospel to them and to that end it is good. It shows them that there is something that they should be longing for, praying for, asking the Lord to give them and that is faith. There's others here this morning that are going to be coming to the table and you desperately need the nourishment that this table provides. You have been racked this week with your own self-introspection and have deemed yourself unworthy of even sitting in this room this morning. And if you are there, I call you to look to Christ, to come to him, to know that the belief that you're being called to this morning isn't whether you're good enough or not, or whether you've done enough right things or not, or your repentance and faith are genuine enough or not. The question I'm asking you this morning is, is that death that Christ died and is that blood that he shed, is that enough to cleanse you from your sin? And it is for all of those who place their faith in him 